0: There were many memories that were resurrected this past week. This building's been our home for 16 years, and when you box everything up, you handle a lot of documents and artifacts. As you put them away, it jogs a lot of memories. Some of those memories were painful for me, to be honest challenging problems, hard decisions, struggles with people, reminders of members that we've lost in death. But mostly, I was reminded over and again that God has been good to us in this place. Some of you first trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior in this building. Some of you first trusted Him. Giving to Him your life. In this place, God's Word has been preached and taught week in and week out, year after year. From this base of operation, beams of Gospel light have penetrated our community, touched many people across the globe, and are doing so today. Proclaiming hope to unbelievers, building up the church of Jesus Christ. The Lord has given us here in increasing ways, I think, a base of operation that is touching people and strengthening His church. In the years the Lord has given us here, we have pooled resources, We have lifted up many prayers, we have utilized gifts, and we have magnified the splendor of God together. God has been good to us in this place. We were virtually homeless when we found this humble building in 1995. We were virtually penniless when we purchased it about six months later in 1996. In those early days, we were also complete strangers in this town. It was rather a harrowing experience at times. A lot of uncertainties as we tried to present our case to turn this building into a house of worship. We had no bearing in this city, and we're not sure if God would allow us to do that, but not knowing all the time that this would become our comfortable home for over 16 years. God has been good to us here. But the time has come to say goodbye. Say goodbye to this place, to this house of worship. Some of us will do so today with a lump in our throats. Others will wonder what on earth is the problem, perhaps. But despite any fond memories that we may leave here, we can, we know, move forward with keen anticipation. We will always give God thanks for supplying this building. Always. But our identity, of course, is not in a building. Our identity is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our identity is within our, with our citizenship in heaven. Our ultimate place of worship is the celestial city whose builder and maker is God. So that's where our hope is. And so we bid farewell to this building really as pilgrims. With our gaze fixed on the road ahead, we lean into the wind and we journey on. As we have put our faith in God in this place, through many trials and blessings, so we journey forward in faith that the same Savior who has been pouring out His blessing upon us here will continue to do so in another place on the planet. God is not obligated to continue prospering Eden Baptist Church or using us for His glory. He owes us nothing. But may we leave this place continuing to walk in humble dependence upon Him as we pour out our lives in the days ahead for His kingdom and glory. And as we stand at this juncture in our church's history, as we move through this transitional period, it's vital that we embrace a faithful perspective of our situation. It's crucial that we mold our thoughts and our attitudes to conform to God's perspective as He sees us at this place and as we look to Him for His grace. How will we think about it? How will we perceive ourselves and how will we move forward? I think we gain help and light to this end in Moses' instructions to the Israelites as they prepared to enter the Promised Land, and turning back again here to the book of Deuteronomy, if you will, to chapter 7, we find God's people in transition. Israel is at a critical juncture in her history. We know the account, many of us, very well Israel, 40 years earlier, was delivered from Egyptian slavery, an event that embodied God's redemptive purposes for His people. It was not simply delivering them from Egypt. End of discussion. But delivering them from in Egypt became a theme, a redemptive theme that would always be brought back to this idea that God is a God who releases His people from bondage. He is in the business of saving His people. Over the past 40 years, we know because of Israel's sin, she's been wandering as a homeless nation in the virtually uninhabitable wilderness to the south and east of Palestine. Now Israel is positioned on this east side of the Jordan, poised to possess the promised land by force. In this book of Deuteronomy, Moses instructs the Israelites as He prepares them spiritually to occupy their new home in the Promised Land. To God's glory, to God's honor, He instructs them how they should think about this process and this transition. And the heart of this instruction, it's important to note, is Israel's responsibility to continue in obedience to God's law. To follow his commandments, his decrees, and his counsel. It's instructive here because they're poised on the verge of an invasion. But the instruction is not about military tactics, the instruction is about obedience to God's word. Walk in obedience to the Lord, and he'll fight every battle. Your call is to be faithful to His truth. The spirit of this council, as Moses talks to the Israelites about their attitude as they possess this land, and as he talks to them about their necessity of hearing the voice of God, the spirit of this council is very applicable to us as we pass through a transition phase in our own journey. Now let's be careful with our Bible interpretation. Please understand, Israel's experience has no direct application to us as a church. In other words, let me say it this way, Savage is not Egypt. Burnsville High School is not Transjordan. And our property over there on Highway 13 is not the promised land. Understanding all that, We never want to twist the Scriptures to interpret it that way and say there's a direct moral call to us here. But having said that, this book is God's Word to His people in transition. It is His Word to His people as they are about to receive a unique blessing. And I think then there is applicable counsel to us which we will not say read ourselves into Israel's account, But nonetheless, take this counsel in this light and realize there is a call to us. And I think that will be very clear as we consider it. So we have Israel. A people moving into a new phase of their history. A once enslaved people. More recently, a nation of liberated Bedouins. They've been liberated, but they're moving from place to place with no place to call their home. Now think of this. They're about to take possession of a rich land with definable boundaries. A land flowing with milk and honey. This is about to become theirs. And to this transitioning people, to this nation soon to receive God's rich blessing, Moses provides a word of counsel I believe we should take it to heart, Eden Baptist Church. Let's take it to heart. Deuteronomy 7, we see the context in verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, that's how Moses starts this line of instruction. He is clearly talking to them about their attitude and orientation after they possess the land. So this is counsel ahead of time. Reparatory advice. Israel is called, in these next verses, to holiness. She's to keep herself separate from the pagan nations now in the land. She is not to form a covenant with them. But she is to remain true to her covenant with God. She is to remain a holy people. Now why is that so? Why must Israel be distinct from the other nations of the land into which she is now headed? Verse 6, Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, 4, Because you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. But Moses says with full assurance to the Israelites, you are uniquely loved by God. He has chosen you as His prized possession. You are His in a way that is wholly distinct from all other nations. To join covenant with these pagan nations who do not serve Me would be to be disloyal. To turn away from this unique love that I have placed upon you. Now that's a glorious truth, isn't it? I mean, there's a moral call there that certainly we need to take seriously. But as Israel hears this, there this is glorious truth. It's truth that should fill their heart with joy and thanksgiving. God has chosen us as His people. But in that consideration, there is also an inherent temptation. The temptation that when we recognize that God has chosen us and made us His unique people, To see in that somehow that we are the reason for it. To be proud. To combat that pride, Moses reminds Israel in verse 7, yes, you are His treasured possession, but it was not because you were in number more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. God's election of Israel had nothing to do with Israel's merit. God did not find something irresistibly attractive in Israel. The nation was small. And by that, I don't think he means just only numerically. That was true, but it was a small nation, therefore a weak nation. Nation, An unattractive nation as far as other nations would be concerned. No one was seeking to form alliances with the Israelites. And God says, that's when I chose you. Well, why then? It's not something attractive that he found in them, not something valuable that he found in them, then why did God choose Israel? Why did he pour out his electing grace upon this nation? Verse 8 is the answer Not because of what I found in you, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Do you hear the answer in there? Not really, do you? Why does God love Israel? Answer, because I've loved Israel. And really, in some sense, the Bible never fully can answer that. It's a mystery as to why God chooses to love anyone. We just know that He does. Some commentators would draw here and say, well, there is a distinct reason here. He's keeping His promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the patriarchs. That's why He's loved Israel. But if you think of that for a while, why did He choose them? Yes, He is keeping His promise to them as He blesses Israel, but why did He bless Abraham? We know how this hits in Genesis 12. It comes out of nowhere. Genesis 1-11 through is not the life of Abraham, the virtuous man. We're just introduced to Abraham and God chooses to love him. And there really is no rational human explanation as to why. So let's think of this as Moses is saying, you're going to enter this land. Here's how I want you to think as you go in. As Israel enters her new home, she is instructed never to forget that God's love for her is grounded in His unmerited love. It is grounded in His faithfulness to her. Not in her appeal, not in her track record, in God's unmerited love. I have loved you. Rest in that. you've gathered with us today, it is possible that you have not come to a place of saving faith in Jesus Christ. You've not come to a sense that your sins have been forgiven in Christ and that you've been united with Him spiritually. I would say to you that the fundamental error that religious people make is to think that God accepts me because of the good deeds that I do or simply because I am. He sees the value in who I am and receives me because of who I am or perhaps because of things that I have done to earn His favor. That's a fundamental error that religious people make. And perhaps you even believe that a right relationship with God is achieved by doing good deeds, by being a good person. God surely would receive someone who's trying If that's what you think, please know this, there's a lot of people who share your opinion. One of them is not God. The love that we find in Scripture from cover to cover in the Bible, God's love for people is always rooted in His unmerited grace. There is nothing that you can do to earn This mercy from God. And seeking to earn this mercy from God is indeed to worship the idols of this world and to turn your back on His provision of grace. Listen to the words of Titus 3 God saves us not because of works done by us in righteousness, He saves us according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. I cannot turn on the outpouring of the Spirit of God by my good works. Only God could possibly do that and He does that through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We become heirs of God. We become His children as our sins are forgiven by what Jesus Christ has done. And if I rest and trust in my own good deeds, then I am saying that in some sense, Jesus' righteousness is not necessary. On some level. but What we must understand is when it comes to God's love, when it comes to becoming one of His children, We are justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ in His death to pay the penalty of sin in His resurrection to give us victory over the grave. Only in that may we rest. If you have not come to place your faith and rest in that message, I beg you on behalf of Christ to throw yourself at His mercy and you will find it rich and eternal. For those of us who have placed our faith in Christ as Savior, this is how we live our lives. With this fundamental innate navigation system that leads everything to recognize that it is the mercy and the grace of God that gives us life and steers us forward. It is not merely seeing the grace of God in our conversion, but it is then, as His followers, to see the grace of God as a fundamental orientation toward everything that we do and receive. We are not accepted on the merits of our good deeds. We weren't accepted on the merits of our good deeds when we received Christ as Savior. And we're not received now in our relationship with Him on the basis of what we do. It is the gift of God's grace that continues to be poured out upon us. This is the root, the heart of our acceptance before God. Now we are indeed to live righteously. As Titus 2 says, He gave Himself for us in order to redeem us from all lawlessness and in order to purify for Himself a people, hear it, for His own possession who are zealous of good works. In Christ, we become the treasured possession of God, as was Israel in a distinct sense. We become the people of God to do good works, not to gain the favor of God, but in response to His love. So at the heart of it all is a sense that the love of God is everything. His grace is everything, and all that comes out of our life flows from this Rootedness, this navigation system at the heart of our soul, at the core of our being, realizing that it is by grace alone that we're saved, it is by grace alone that we're sanctified, it is by grace alone that we have life. We're moved by that inner trust. So at the end of the day, no matter how God blesses us, Eden Baptist Church should always be marked by a deep-seated Humility. The truth is that we are the undeserving recipients of Christ's unmerited love. God in His mercy chose us as His prized possession. If we will really grasp that reality, we will not grow proud as a church. If we grasp this reality, in our li- then our lives will be marked by a joyful humility that feasts on the goodness of God's grace. And such humility that is satisfied in God's mercy shows itself on people's faces. It shows itself in their lives. It cannot be hidden. There's this pervasive, driving, inner humility centered in God's unmerited love. That's who you need to be, Israel. Moses says as you come into the land, to know that God loved you because He loved you. And so must we recognize this truth in our everyday lives. Having established that point generally here in chapter 7, Moses sounds the same theme again in chapter 8, but applies it more specifically to this possession of the land in Israel's experience. Deuteronomy chapter 8, We've read these first ten verses and we remember in these opening verses that Moses recounts the trials the Israelites suffered in their wilderness wanderings. Disciplinary trials. God designed to strengthen their faith to teach them to rely on His Word for His sustenance. Yes, He says in the first five verses, I took you through trouble. I took you through trouble to teach you to depend on My Word. To know that it's not on your armies that you will succeed. It's not on your name. It's not on your wealth. It's on My Word that you will find sustenance. That you will eat and accomplish what God has, what I have given you to accomplish. Having said that then, we come to verse 6. So, what's the end of all of this? What's the outcome of all of these trials in the wilderness? Here it is. So that you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in His ways and by fearing Him. That's the whole point of the wilderness trials, Moses says, that you would fear God, that you would walk in His word. Now God is delivering the Israelites out of that desert experience. You see the transition here. This is what you were taught in the trials of the wilderness, the trust in the word of God. Now you're coming into a place where many of those trials are going to be in your rear view mirror how are you going to respond now on this side of the Jordan? You're coming to a bountiful land, verse 7. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills. A land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees, And pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing. A land whose stones are iron, and out of those hills you can dig copper. You shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land He has given you. Just think of where Israel is. I mean, Their soul is parched by a lack of water. They've had to beg water from other nations. God has provided food in the wilderness for them, but what a different world they're entering into from the harsh, barren wilderness. Now Israel is taking possession of a land that boasts natural springs of limestone-filtered water, of flowing streams and even of lakes. It's a land that produces wheat and barley and grapes and figs and dates and olives and pomegranates. Pistachio nuts and almonds and honey. And here you can sustain flocks and herds unlike anything they've known for a long time. How should Israel respond as she enters into this good land? Notice the attitude, the orientation. Verse 11, "...take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes." which I command you today. Take care. The Hebrew word speaks of guarding or keeping vigil. Israel is warned to keep guard over her soul so that she does not disregard God's Word. Moses has a specific situation in mind. That's general. Don't turn away from the Word of God as you come to this place of security and prosperity. Specifically, he has this in mind, verse 12, "...lest when you have eaten, and are full, and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply, and your silver and your gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that He might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. God has uniquely delivered Israel from all sorts of trouble. Slavery in Egypt. Many dangers, toils, and snares in the wilderness. All of it intended to teach them dependence upon Him, trust in His Word. They had to rely in faith upon the Lord. But now, you're going into this place where all these things are supplied. Let's get back to the point that Moses is driving home here. Verse 17. Beware then, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of My hand have gotten Me this wealth. When God delivers manna on the desert floor every morning, it's pretty difficult to say, I did that. It's pretty difficult to ignore the Lord. He is providing your food every day in a place where there's no food. But in this new fertile land, Israel will be raising her own wheat and making her own bread. She will be raising crops, managing flocks and herds. And the temptation Moses knows will be for them to say, probably never to articulate it. They don't get up in the morning and announce this. But he knows the temptation will be to say, look what I have done. Look what we have accomplished. Or to say it a little bit differently, once God pours out His prosperity, we no longer think of Him. We just grab His gifts. And we turn them into idols. And so the God who pours out His blessing upon us, we take those gifts and we turn our back on the giver. Beware. Do not let that happen, Moses says. It's a warning against arrogance, a warning against self-congratulatory idolatry. Look what we have done. Prosperity naturally fuels pride. That's an innate danger. And especially for people who have come to terms with God's electing love, such pride is wickedness. So, I think a good word here for us as we enter into a new possession. Now, a cynic might quip at this point that we do not possess any wealth in Burnsville, we only possess debt. That's it. Admittedly, our buildings belong less to us at the moment and more to our bank, but we're going to work on that. As far as we can reasonably determine, this is a story that's still being written. Christ carries His return. The story of a church is not like a family that goes with one generation and then the others pass on unto their own stories. But a church can go four generations. We're at a particularly unique spot in the journey of this church. By God's grace, over time, we will grasp uh, this building to be entirely our own. Understanding all of that We are poised to receive a great blessing in the building that God is providing for us on Highway 13 in Burnsville. And perhaps as we apply and think of these truths, one of the greatest dangers is not going to be years that are here shortly to pass, but down the road when we do have this building paid for by God's grace. There's a temptation to become self-satisfied. Self sufficient, self congratulatory, and even right away proud. We must never permit ourselves to do this, to take any personal credit, or to with pride in any way boast in what God has given. Israel's called here to resist pride in verse 11. Take care. Take care lest you forget the Lord. In verse 17, beware lest you say in your heart, it's about Me. It's what I've done. What I've accomplished. That's the negative. Now positively, Moses counsels then in verse 18. We're at the core of his instruction here in verses 17 and 18. Do not let your heart become proud in what I've given you, in what God has giving you. But verse 18, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is this day. Anything that we can accomplish for God is a gift from the Lord Himself. And so we take no pride in it. And Could we do something together here today, Eden Baptist Church? Could we do this? Let us determine right here and now that we will not permit any root of pride to take root in our hearts. That we will not boast. We will take no vain pride in any property. Now, I know we can, we can go at this psychologically. We can keep ourselves very balanced psychologically. This building's really not all that big. It's really not all that great. As we put ourselves, our tiny church, next to other important churches in our own city, uh, we're not important. That's the psychological argument. I think we need to aim at a theological argument. and That is to be driven not simply by comparing ourselves among ourselves and feeling humbled because others are larger, bigger, more important but rather that we would look to our God and know at the core of our being that it is His grace, His provision, His kindness, His goodness to us. That every joy we would take in anything that we gain, possess, or accomplish would always be a broken-hearted joy in God's love. It is His love. It is His provision. It is His goodness to us in Christ. Nothing else. A few weeks ago, we sang in our new auditorium, unfinished as it was, we sang, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. May the spirit of that song never leave our souls. May it never, ever leave us. There are grave dangers when it does. Verse 19 If you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. They knew what that meant. The older generation had been buried in the desert by now. You too will perish. I buried them in the desert. I can bury you in the good land. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Don't let that happen. And our setting would be so different, so distinct, that we can go into the possessions that the Lord is providing for us and we can become self-centered and self-dependent and proud. And Jesus can blow our candlestick out and we don't even know it. May there always be a sense that it is God's mercy and His goodness to us. And may we then seek to live as His holy people in distinction from this world and its self-centered, self-magnifying ways. God has been good to us in this place. He's been good to us here. Yes, there have been many Tests and trials over the past 16 years. And I'm thankful that right now we're facing those tests and those trials as we make this transition. This is a financial hurdle that is substantial, and there's going to be difficulties as we face these trials. But I say I'm happy for that because it means we must go forward depending on God. This is a simple sermon Be holy in the world. Don't be proud. Simple. We know this. But what my genuine hope is, is that this central navigation system of utter humility in the electing love of God would drive this church to ever be humble, ever be faithful to God's Word, and ever be holy. So that if ever we came to a place where we became comfortable. I think there's ways we need to work around ever being able to be comfortable. But that aside, if we become comfortable in a building, there may be some who are attracted by that comfort. And my hope and my prayer is that there will be a fire within us that says, it's the love and the grace of God alone. And that humility marks our faces, our purposes, our orientation. It's my prayer that a desire to be holy and faithful to the Lord will ever characterize Eden Baptist Church. So we say goodbye to this building. But as we do, I trust that we will move forward as pilgrims who are profoundly humbled by the realization that we are the rich recipients of God's gracious love, and that we would move forward in faith, not relying on ourselves, not impressed with our own accomplishments, but deeply awed by the power and the grace of our God, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's bow. Father, we can hardly begin to articulate all that You have done for us. How You have blessed us. It's been some tiring days, some exhausting times, some seasons of deep grief. And through it all, though we would perhaps never choose one of these trials and difficult experiences, we rejoice together as a church in what You've done. That You have used these trials to deepen and bless this church. Father, we pause and give You thanks for the tremendous blessings You've poured out upon us. It is a privilege to serve as Your representatives in this world. And I pray that we will ever strive to do so more effectively more energetically, with greater faith. I pray that You'll deepen us and change us. But Lord, as we leave here, that with thanksgiving in our heart, we will depend upon You to continue to lead and direct us forward for the glory of Your name. For anyone who knows not Christ as Savior in our midst, I pray that You would bring them to saving faith in Jesus Christ even today. For those of us who know You, Father, do a work in our souls. Permit us by Your sanctifying grace to be a humble people. Driven by the joy that we have been loved by You through no merit of our own, through no natural attraction in us, You have loved us in Christ. Thank You. Thank You, our Savior, for this love. Amen.